Well, happy Reformation Day. <laughs> and we're going to start this morning by reading the scripture that we have for our progress through the book of Colossians. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourishing it together through his ligament, joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. This could go from preaching to meddling this morning, so let's pray. I do thank you, Father, for your word, and thank you for this section of the book of Colossians, where we're kind of finishing up the orthodoxy section, the, the right understanding of who Jesus is and how he is supreme over everything, how he's, over, how he's supreme over our lives, and how he is to be Lord over all and not encumbered with other things that just draw away from his glory. So help us, Father, this morning to uh, not only learn from your word, but also see how we can apply it. And also, Father, how we can utilize it in contact when we come in contact with other people as well. Uh, that may not apply to us particularly, but there are people we're going to meet to whom this does apply. So help us, Father, to clearly understand your word and to be able to, once again, to apply it to your glory. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs> Well, on, uh, on October 31st, 1517, a mere 504 years ago, I remember like it was yesterday, uh, a 34-year-old Bible teacher and pastor in Wittenberg, which was a backwater town in the midst, uh, central part of Germany, posted a list of statements that he wished to debate. Mm -hmm. There we go. On the front door of the Wittenberg Chapel. This was a spot where scholars made real postings, not the ones we think of today composed of ones and zeros. This had real writing. And Martin Luther was greatly concerned for the people in his congregation because he saw that they were being used by Pope Leo to fund the rebuilding of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. And the funding was being obtained through the sale of something called an indulgence. For a fee, you could either shorten or maybe even eliminate the suffering of your dead relatives in purgatory, which was the place where if you weren't quite good enough for heaven, you suffered for a while. Now, a super salesman, a fellow named Johann Tetzel, was an individual who went from town to town who was selling these indulgences on behalf of the church. And he always competed his spiel with these words, as a coin into the coffer rings, so the soul from purgatory springs. Now, Luther compared his studies in the New Testament, especially in the book of Galatians, and concluded that the selling of indulgences was contrary to the certainty supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ. 
It actually duped his people into gaining a false assurance of salvation by seeing the grace of God being put on sale. It weakened their dependence on Christ by teaching them that they could buy their way into heaven. They were falling into the trap of legalism, or empty ritualism maybe, by placing a special value on religious performance in order to obtain God's favor. And Luther, by posting these 95 statements, these 95 theses, unknowingly at that time lit a fuse, a gospel fuse that fractured all these monolithic religious traditions and allowed the light of God's grace in Jesus to shine forth even up to this day. Now, there's a direct connection between Luther and our text today. The medieval church over the centuries had gone down a path that left the gospel kind of a dim and distant, distant memory. Luther spent his life trying to bring the church back to salvation by grace, grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. To do that, he had to fight the elemental spirits of the world on three fronts, in legalism and mysticism and asceticism. The Church of the Middle Ages had been taken over by religious errors in these three areas. And, and the same spirits continued to capture and misguide many professing Christians in our day as well. But they were certainly not new issues, because the Apostle Paul addresses these same three issues in our text this morning. Now, just to make the, create a little dissonance here. In 1963, a new television show came on the air called Let's Make a Deal created and hosted by the always glib Monty Hall, and he did it for 30 years, and it was really popular. Matter of fact, it was reissued in 2009. I guess it's still going on today, at least according to my source of all knowledge, Wikipedia. <laughs> now, this is the game show where people trade all kinds of goods for other goodies that increase in value ostensibly. For instance, you could trade up for something that was worth $10,000 or a trip to Europe or maybe a new car. But near the end of each show, a trader is invited to trade in everything they have just won for what's behind one of the three doors on the stage. Time after time, they make the trade. Sometimes the door opens and there's a lonesome yama <laughs> or some equally terrible surprise and they get zonked. They lose everything. They give up actual riches. They give up any advantage they might have had. And they come away with something that they don't want or they can't use. Why would anyone do that? With the prize they already have in their possession, what would ever make, want them to trade those benefits for what's hidden behind a door? Well, a similar phenomenon takes place in settings other than this game show. Sometimes we feel that there must be more to the Christian life than what I'm experiencing right now. And along comes a persuasive person with a promise of greater spiritual power if we just add some things to how we're serving Christ right now. And men and women over the centuries have been tempted time and time again to add good activities to their life in order to become more spiritual, more pleasing to God, more acceptable. But they find often that when they give up these riches that they already have, they end up gaining nothing in return. They get zonked. When things are not going the way that we think they should or the way we like, we find the temptation to add to what we have in Christ very compelling. We're attracted by the tantalizing possibilities of what actually is behind that door. Could God be hiding something from me? Of course, that's an old question. Ask Eve. But 
But in Colossians 2, we encounter Paul's teaching about the errors that invaded the church at Colossae. He alluded to it earlier, but now he gets very, very uh, deliberate in talking directly about these deceivers that are already in the church, this very young church. And we don't really know what the actual teachings were that Paul was concerned about. All we can do is study what he wrote, look at the surrounding conditions in the environment, the, the, the situation at that time, and try to figure it out. But we're always looking in a rearview mirror. However, it does keep a lot of scholars busy. I think there have been, somebody told me there are more PhD theses written on Colossians chapter 2 than any other section in Scripture. I don't know if that's true or not. Maybe somebody's just having a bad day. But, <laughs> but we do know that early Christians, especially if they faced a hodgepodge of spiritual error, Kind of, you know, a mishmash of philosophy and misleading ideas. Some from Jewish backgrounds, some from Gentile philosophers, some from pagan superstitions. And we too face the same kind of a mixture of wrong ideas in our world today. Sometimes they're better disguised. But we have a whole lot less of an excuse than they did. Keep in mind that the only Bible these people had in Colossae, if they had one at all, was the Septuagint. It was the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. The New Testament wasn't assembled yet. So all they had was a teaching from an apostle or an evangelist and the Old Testament to rely on. They didn't have the Gospels. So Paul fired his initial salvo in this whole thing in, in chapter 2, verse 8, where he tells the Colossian Christians, don't be imprisoned by philosophy and empty deceit based on human traditions and on evil spirits. Then in verse 16, he narrows it down. He's, now he's going to talk about particular areas where they're being led astray. Now, things that he lists are not in and of themselves necessarily bad. I mean, eating, drinking, those are kind of necessary. Celebrating holidays, fasting. I mean, being careful that our freedom doesn't cause our brother and sister to stumble. Those are good things. So why does Paul single them out for dire warnings? He wants us to see, as he tells us, that Jesus is the solid substance of true freedom and also spiritual nourishment. So we don't dare place our faith in beliefs and practices that are mere shadows and treat them as if they're the real thing. So the question comes, well, what are those beliefs and practices? So Colossians provides at least three things I could find or activities that can lead us away from Jesus while at the same time promising to draw us closer. And these are things that can hurt believers if misused. Now, as I go through these things, I don't see a lot of these being an issue in our church, necessarily, but it's an opportunity for you to take spiritual inventory and also to consider the people that you run in con come in contact with, maybe they're running into some of these traps. So maybe you can be a, re a resource. So the first thing he brings up in verses 16 and 17 is that Christ, not legalism or empty ritualism, No, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. So on the one hand, as I put up here, legalism means treating biblical standards of conduct as regulations that we need to keep in our own power in order to earn God's favor. On the other hand, it could also mean setting rules beyond the teaching of Scripture and teaching that you have to follow these in order to be a full participant in the local body 
the family of God, the church. Both are situations of legalism. So in the first case, we use our own power to make ourselves moral. In the second case, we use our own power to make the church moral. Now what unites these two forms of legalism at its root is unbelief. God hasn't provided everything that we need for living a life that pleases him in Jesus alone. We need something more. Well, in that preceding section in chapter 2 that Marty covered last week, remember that Paul teaches that we are baptized as an expression of our faith in Christ. And it pictures that we die in him, and he says, and we're made alive as new people. We're forgiven all of our sins, and the warrant that the law had issued for our arrest is torn up. Christ has completely satisfied the righteous demands of God on our behalf, in our stead, so that we're freed from the curse of the law. And the demonic powers that used to love to torment us with guilt and enslave us with legalism are disarmed and defeated and publicly humiliated. Well, how then should we live as new creatures in Christ set free from the power of legalism? Why does it still have power? The first thing he says is, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink. Well, consumption of food and drink is certainly no basis for judging a person standing with God or that person standing in God's family. I mean, to be sure, Paul had to deal with the abuse of food and drink. He addressed things like uh, not not eating food that was given to idols or dealing with drunkenness. But his approach to these was never to forbid food and drink. It was always to forbid whatever it was that destroyed God's temple or injured the person's faith. He taught the principle of love, namely, that you're going to rely on the Holy Spirit to guide Christians in matters of food and drink. We rely on the Spirit. So food restrictions and special diets and observance of special ceremonies and days, especially the Sabbath, obviously arose out of a Jewish, Jewish practices. So if you're a new Christian in Colossae because of your response to the preaching of Epaphras, not even not Paul, you would be susceptible to the, to the individuals who would come in who had a Jewish background. Once again, remember, you only had the Old Testament. But they're familiar with the Old Testament. So an individual like this came into your church and wanted to take charge of the church, they would very easily tell you that all those regulations of the Old Testament are still valid. They still count. If you want to serve God more fully, more completely, you have to adhere to those Old Testament regulations regarding things that are clean and things that are unclean. I mean, Jesus would not have gone against the Old Testament if he were truly the Messiah, would he? He's Jewish too. Well, the Old Covenant observances, actually, Paul says, are pointing to a future reality that was fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Christians are no longer under the Mosaic Covenant. Christians are no longer obligated to observe Old Testament dietary laws or festivals, holidays or special days, even the Sabbath, for what these things foreshadow has been fulfilled in Christ. Jesus himself said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So the shadows are subsumed under Jesus' lordship. So all of those Old Covenant observances were intended to enable the Israelites to become clean 
and then as a result be able to enter into God's temple or the tabernacle to worship him. So as to make a person clean enough using external signs to be able to worship the holy God in the temple or the tabernacle and to preserve the temple actually as a clean place as well. So these regulations existed to preserve the holiness of the temple by, by keeping out impurity. So the false teaching that these regulations are still valid and that a Jesus follower has to abide by them to be clean enough to worship God is total error. They're saying that faith in Jesus alone is not enough. You need something more. So Paul is telling them this is a very serious error. You're misunderstanding Jesus and his ministry and what he came to do. Because all of those Old Testament observances, all those Old Testament regulations are actually shadows that are cast backward from their solid fulfillment in Christ. The Old Testament looks forward to the fulfillment in Jesus. He is the solid temple that the tabernacle and the earthly temple are looking forward to. Jesus is the final temple. He is the location where true worship occurs now and forever. Remember, it was Jesus who said to the Pharisees before he was crucified, destroy this temple and in three days I'll rebuild it. They thought he was talking about the literal temple. He was talking about his body. So Jesus, as a true temple, now makes his worshipers clean through his blood, his voluntary sacrifice for our sins, plus nothing else. Hebrews, uh, in Hebrews chapter 9 and first part of 10 tells it this way. But as it is, he, Jesus, has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. And Paul's warning also echoes Jesus' word to his disciples in Mark chapter 7. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person, out of his heart, is what defiles him. So I think about it, we say, Well, that was obviously a first century issue. Couldn't possibly apply to us, could it? Well, many people still think that the essence of Christianity is following the right rules, even if those rules go beyond what the Bible has. Paul's caution is we dare not make these matters the test of whether a person's authentically a Christian or not. That would be a deadly violation of the gospel because it would substitute human tradition for the real leading of the Spirit. And Jesus was death on traditions that supplanted God. So I threw together some questions, kind of a self-test, to see if any of these things are true in your life or maybe they're just indications that maybe there's something that started to infiltrate your life. It hasn't taken its full form yet, but just they're kind of things to be careful of. Do I believe that God loves me more when I behave? That might be kind of incipient legalism there. I'm adding something to what the gospel teaches. Do I believe Christians don't play cards or have a glass of wine with dinner? Do you feel that other Christians are not very spiritual if they do things that you think are wrong? This gets into the whole mask, no mask, vaccine, no vaccine, homeschool, government school, not using my Bible translation, 
you know, ad nauseum. Do I avoid contact with sinful people and encourage other Christians to do the same? Kind of forget the fact that Jesus sought out the one society rejected. Remember when Jesus came, the whole concept of clean and unclean went out the window. Jesus spent his time with unclean people. Much to the disgust of the individuals who consider themselves morally clean. So in the Old Testament, to touch something that was considered unclean made you unclean. In the New Testament, we're told to go and touch things that are unclean because now we can make them clean. Reversed it. And that's where Jesus wants us to be. In the same area of ministering where he does, which is where people are needy but not really sought after. How about do I feel like my day is cursed or bad things are going to happen if I skip Bible reading or prayer this morning, if I skip my devotion? What's true is that whenever authentic, joyful confidence in Christ starts to diminish, we always bring in regulations to preserve what the power of Christ once created. I mean, if you put up together enough regulations and a big enough endowment, an institution can endure for decades after the spiritual dynamic they brought into existence is gone. Look at Ivy League schools, just for instance. The basic question I think that we need to ask ourselves is, does the activity emphasize shadow over substance? Does it make non-essentials into things that are orthodoxy, things that have to be believed and carried out? And the key point here is to walk worthy of the gospel by serving Christ only, joyfully and completely, but only. Well, legalism and empty rituals are Paul's first concern. Then he gets into... Oops. Christ, not mystical experience. Oh boy, this gets more fun. The false teachers in Colossae were wrongly disqualifying people by means of two criteria, neither of which are based on a Christ-centered faith. They took pleasure, apparently, in self-abasement, and then they also encouraged the worship of angels, which we know would actually be demonic spirits. Well, how do these two things fit together? Well, among pagan mystery religions, what are called mystery religions, which were really popular, especially among the military, it was common to practice extreme fasting in order to prepare yourself for seeing heavenly visions. Especially in Asia Minor, where Colossae is located, there were two stages of initiation, usually. First, there was kind of an initial entrance with some initial teaching into the outer areas of the God's temple. Now, after more instruction and more things maybe that you memorized, more things that you did, it was followed by a more elaborate entrance then into the inner parts of the temple where the god resided. And this entering into the inner place occurred along with a vision of some sort. Now, we already know offhand that there are some non-Christian applications of this even today. There's a church, so-called church out of Salt Lake City, that majors in this. And they got it from Freemasonry or the Shriners or things like that. So where they have these secret rites and secret initiation rites and so on that if anybody disclosed them, they're supposed to die. Of course, that was before YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> now, this same sort of teaching became something in the 1970s, 80s, 90s. It was called the New Age Movement. 
An individual named Shirley MacLaine was the outspoken evangelist for this whole movement. Some of us older people will remember her. I mean, her followers got a full dose of a world of strange beings, of astrology, Ouija boards, psychics, avatars, gurus, you name it, the whole gamut. And her occultism supposedly helped to develop our inborn human potential. It's residing here, it's latent, but we have to be able to develop it. And that requires exposure to all these other kinds of spiritual things. What's interesting, I think, is that, that this century, her New Age concepts have moved into the church via things like self-help therapies, prosperity gospel, and worship that's based on emotion. What's the danger in all that? I think the, the apostle puts it very plainly. It disqualifies you for the prize. This is a serious matter. Because he's been referred to this prize all through this letter. He's saying it will eliminate you from the race, removing you from the possibility of actually experiencing Christ in you, the hope of glory. So verse 18 becomes a really strong warning against a, a false view of worship. The false teachers were telling Christians, apparently, that they need to have some kind of a vision-type experience in order not to be disqualified, in order, in order to actually maybe be or to be qualified as a first-rate Christian, you had to have some kind of an experience. You had to have some kind of a, usually out of, maybe an out-of-body experience if you were lucky. But Christians, by trusting in Jesus, really have all the temple experience they need to be a first-class Christian. There's the danger comes. No one can disqualify us because, just because we haven't had a vision of angels or some sort of a vision of a heavenly temple or some kind of a, uh, ecstatic experience. Because Paul says such a teacher is puffed up and arrogant without reason by claiming to be essentially more godly than others because of self-discipline or because he had a privileged experience of supposedly worshiping angels. Now remember, Paul had a similar experience. Remember in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he talks about this man that he knew had this autobody of experience, which was autobiographical, because he goes on and says, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Huh. It's a little different than being arrogant. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That's the whole opposite of what the, Paul says the false teachers are promoting. And he says they were not holding fast to the head of the body of Christ. I remember a, a pastor that I, I served under for a few years in an internship years ago used to say, you can't have the head without the body. He's trying to tell us, uh, communicate that the, the, the Christian is part of Christ's body and his earthly form is a part of the church. So really, you, in order to have Jesus, you really have to have the church. You have to be a part of a community, a fellowship. Because the New Testament has no concept of a lone wolf Christian. It always sees us as part of a Christian community. So to separate the head from the body really is to lose leadership, it's to lose nourishment, uh, it's, to lose, it's to lose direction. 
Well, there are Christians today, especially teachers and churches too, that becoming a Christian requires you to repent of your sins and commit your life to Jesus. But that's just a starting point. If you want to become a Christian living in victory over sin and Satan, you have to have a second experience of God's grace. And that experience is often emotional and involves some kind of a supernatural sign, such as speaking in an unknown language or maybe seeing a vision. Now, my viewpoint of this is colored a little bit because I had a personal experience with this approach. As a, as a new Christian, our pastor invited in a special speaker. And he spoke about how much more power was available to a Christian beyond mere conversion. So after the service was aside, he took me aside, I remember in particular, to a side room, and he asked me if I want to serve the Lord wholeheartedly. I said, well, of course I do. He then told me I had to bow in prayer with him. And he began to speak in some sort of gibberish, at least to my untrained ears, and he encouraged me to do the same. Whatever, whatever comes to mind, whatever comes to your, forth, your, your thinking, just say it. Whatever sounds come to mind, just say it. Well, none came. I tried, but none came. Now, he was greatly disappointed, and no doubt, I'm sure he was left with negative thoughts about future dealings with engineers. But uh, <laughs> so I have to admit that colors my opinion. But what are some characteristics of those who teach that becoming a Christian is just a starting point, and you need some kind of mystical experience to really grow as a disciple, to go from being a second-class to a first-class Christian. Here's a few characteristics. Experience becomes the authority rather than God's word. This is a dangerous spot to be in. The slope of the New Testament is always from truth to experience, not the other way around. Whereas back in the old days when we were on Campus Crusade staff, we always had this picture of a train. It had a engine and a tender and a caboose and it was fact faith and feelings and it said you always drive the train with the facts with the engine you don't drive it with the emotions the feelings the caboose uh, trying to encourage people as far as gaining assurance of salvation also if you if people feel the same way that being coming christian is just where you start uh, it gives a sense of superiority of being kind of in a special class with god and it also tends to avoid the hard work of searching the word for answers in order to grow. And it tends to diminish discernment that comes from the word, and it, it really thrives on biblical ignorance. Um, and it tends to make people a bit more intolerant or to resent those who question their experience by bringing it under the searchlight of Scripture. I mean, so God said that to you, how do you know it was God? That tends to be an offensive question. And this whole movement was kind of thrown into, uh, I'd say, uh, disrepute uh, years ago when a man named Oral Roberts, uh, who founded Oral Roberts University in Oklahoma City, I think it's in Oklahoma anyway, Tulsa. Oh, no, I committed a faux pas there. Um, anyway, he decided that he wanted to build a hospital. And he went public with this, very public, with this statement that he saw a vision of a 900-foot-high Jesus who told him that he had to build that hospital and he needed your money. And if you didn't send him the 2 or $3 million, whatever it was, if he didn't get it by a certain date, God was going to kill him. That discredited Christianity like you wouldn't believe. 
Uh, it made for a whole lot of fodder for uh, political cartoons and so on. That's where this can lead to. That person's not careful. Who are we to counteract if someone says, hey, I saw a 900-foot-high Jesus? Well, I don't see it in Scripture. He doesn't seem to appear that way. That's irrelevant, right, <laughs> for people like this. Be careful. When someone tells you some new, exciting experience that he or she has had, or usually in most cases heard or read about, saw on YouTube, you need to ask a basic question. Does what you experience foster unity in the body of Christ? Or does it lead to division of making one person more spiritual than another? We all know where we need to be. So be careful we don't fall into the trap. Paul isn't done yet. There's a third area of concern that he brings up that he has for these new Christians in Colossae and for us as well. And that is Christ, not asceticism. But what is asceticism? Well, the dictionary describes an ascetic as one who leads a very austere and self-denying life. Puts aside the comforts of the world in favor of disciplining his body, disciplining emotions. I'm sure you've all heard about the fellow who took a, a vow of silence in a monastery. He's only allowed to speak two words each year. When his first year was up, he reported to the abbot, bed hard. Another year went by and he came to the same superior with food cold. A third year called by and he had his third opportunity to speak and he said, want out. <laughs> to which his superior replied, I can understand why. All you've done is complain the whole time you've been here. <laughs> so, that's one aspect of asceticism, of denying, giving up you know, personal freedoms for the sake of disciplining yourself. But here, and nothing wrong with discipline, but he's describing a zeal that goes way beyond true discipline and seeks to appease God by extreme forms of self-denial. If you look at the history of the early church, you can see how this became a movement on it, all on of its own. Because dedication and discipline are an important part of the Christian life. I mean, a lot of times you have to, you have to do, make yourself do what you don't want to do because you know that God wants you to do it. Tell the truth, not a lie. Uh, be honest. You know, things like that that maybe we'd rather not do at the time. But we do it. We discipline ourselves to do it. The fruit of the Spirit, one of the fruit is self-discipline, self-control. So that's the proper motive, is out of love for God and serving Him. And Paul, remember, he's already commended these Colossian Christians because they lead disciplined, well-ordered lives. But you can make a god of discipline. You can take perverse delight in making yourself do difficult things to win the approval of others, and you hope God as well. I mean, uh, as a monk, Martin Luther found this trap before he became a believer. He would lie naked in his cell in the wintertime in the cold. He tortured himself in many other ways, trying to find peace for his heart. But he found, like some of the early church fathers did, that the more that they tortured themselves physically, the more the evil impulses that they were trying to correct manifested themselves. It got worse now than better. The apostle says this approach is all wrong. He talks about lesser forms of it by saying, uh, uh, don't handle, don't touch, don't taste. I mean, I went to a seminary eons ago with a, with a few students who grew up in Christian churches that thought there were certain things that Christians must always avoid. 
And if you avoid those taboos, you not only were acceptable to the religious community, but you were actually pleasing God. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about here because you've had a similar experience. They were taught that Christians never drink, never dance, never smoke, never go to movies, never play cards, never read novels, on and on and on down the list. Don't play pool, you know, there are all kinds of rules. But think about it, what's really wrong with abstaining from certain activities? Well, what's wrong with fasting until you're close to death? What's wrong with wearing hair shirts inside out? What's wrong with refusing to marry or eating only vegetables or praying by the clock and so on? Well, three things, I think, says the apostle. First, it shows that you don't understand what it means to die with Christ. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? To do so, he says, is to return to childish behavior, thinking that God's going to be pleased by your negative approach to life. Being dead means you're no longer under the control of spirits that are contrary to God. Godliness is not achieved through asceticism, but it's through identification with Christ. It's by being in him. So what are these elemental spirits of the world that Paul keeps mentioning? Well, pagan philosophers taught that there were the basic elements of the world are earth, air, fire, and water. None of those mankind can really control. So they concocted a set of gods that they associated with these basic elements. Now these gods, of course, are arbitrary and capricious and immoral, and the only way to coexist with them is to trade worship for getting good results from them. So if you wanted a good crop, you would placate the god of the earth, the god of water, the god of the sun, and maybe the god of insects, and so on, by offering something that they valued, or perhaps maybe what the priests valued. So rules were made to promote the supposed interests of the gods so you could gain entrance into his temple. So people lived in fear, and they always thought to try to find ways to appease these so-called gods. Now, of course, in our enlightened society, things like that, we're free of superstition and fear of things that we can't control, right? So this is kind of a non-issue. How about the term Mother Nature, or Gaia? I mean, I hear the term used by gardening pros and weather forecasters and environmental activists and others, probably even without thinking about it. I mean, many people today attribute natural events to Mother Nature because they seem arbitrary and beyond our control. Every time we get tornadoes, hurricanes, blizzards, floods, and other weather woes, the news and the media seems to blame it all on Mother Nature. Or maybe on us because we made her angry. But we're not superstitious. None of that, but when we have wonderful weather and a beautiful day, we'll say something like, Mother Nature smiled on us today with this warm weather. She gets the credit and the glory. And of course, Mother Nature is offended if we don't treat, do what our environmental activists people say we should. Our culture treats this elemental spirit as if it were a god. Now this one, I'm going to launch onto the deep here and say that another elemental spirit is our veneration of experts. Usually individuals who are held up as paragons of truth in our culture based on their educational attainments or on media attention. 
Now the reputations have been tarnished a bit now after how they've tied us up in knots over the response of the Wuhan flu. But we still have experts telling us today that a young man who feels like a girl today must be taken seriously or else. As Christians, we don't live in fear. We don't attempt to appease false gods, even if they come disguised as maybe experts. God is the one who is sovereign over the universe. Not Mother Nature, not experts, or not anybody else that you want to throw in that category. I, I had a long list. I said, I'm going to leave some of the more offensive ones out that we could also consider as gods. The second thing Paul says is that whatever benefit these things may gain, it's only temporary. It ends at death. He says these are all destined to perish with use because they're based on human commands and teachings. Which is why Jesus took the Pharisees to task when he said, you observe these minute rituals, but inwardly you are tombs filled with dead men's bones. I mean, outwardly you guys look good, but inwardly you're dead to God. Your scrupulous refusal to live normal lives gives you certain status and privilege, but it's all going to be worthless in the end. You're going to die. The third thing he says is that these things are of no value in restraining the indulgence of the flesh. Or to put it on the flip side, they can't bring about spiritual transformation. People like us may appear outwardly dedicated and disciplined, but inwardly, sin's still there. It still rages. There's still resentment. There's still uh, hatred. And Christians can come to this as well. When we try to regulate the externals instead of walking in the fullness and freshness of life with Jesus, finding the inward purity that we need and cleansing that he alone provides. And all these errors have one thing in common. They lose Christ. They lose sight of who he is. And if you fall into any one of these traps that Paul lays out here, you lose the vitality, you lose the vigor of your Christian walk. Life becomes dull, sometimes desperate. Many Christians discover this has happened to them when it's too late. But even at that point, all you need to do is to return to Jesus back to where they started and cut aside away from all the other things that led them astray. So the false teachers have been making far too big a deal of matters that don't get to the essence of what it means to be a Christian, of true Christian spirituality, the change of heart and mind that leads to holiness. Remember, Jesus told the Pharisees, Nothing from the outside can defile you by going into you. It's what comes out of you from the heart that defiles you. And God always changes from the inside out, from the heart. So a question to help clarify the issue of asceticism, does my activity help the process of sanctification or is it a distraction? So let me summarize. But just by asking three general questions that apply to each of these areas that Paul addressed in this text. These are kind of general questions, once again, personal evaluation questions. Does the activity I'm considering or I'm being told is a good idea emphasize shadow over substance? Does it make non-essentials into things that are considered orthodox beliefs? There's a whole lot of those. That's why in our statement of faith, we actually have, we tried to boil it down to the essentials, the non-negotiable items. There's a whole lot of other issues out there that are negotiable. For instance, we say, Jesus is coming back personally, bodily. We don't say when. We don't tell him when he has to come back. We, get, we try to distill it down to the truth. So we need to stick with 
the truth that Scripture reveals, not get into all the peripheral areas, and then judge one another based on that. Does the activity foster unity in the body of Christ or lead to division by comparing the spirituality of one person over another or by favoring certain kinds of experiences? Another area to be careful. That's another one of those traps. Or, and the third one is, does the activity help me to become more like Christ or does it rely on external activities to change my heart? So I hope this helps. I know Paul saw this as a serious concern to a church that he had never been to personally. He just gotten response back from Epaphras and what was going on. He's trying to address the issues that seem to be derailing their faith. Remember, they didn't have much for resources. So they're really relying on Paul's letter here and the other teaching they're getting in order to counteract some of these things. So I hope this helps in helping you be able to decide, too, those areas in your life, maybe that you're involved in or maybe that you're tempted to or you know friends who are, how can you help? Let's pray. Father, these are tough verses in a lot of ways because they run against the grain of us wanting something new and special and uniquely ours. We tend often not to want to stick with would you tell us the important things? We always seem like we're trying to improve on it. So help us, Father, to be have, be discerning, to have our antenna tuned to you and not to the world around us, not to the elemental spirits of the world, not to those things that would try to lead us astray and away from you. Just thank you for joining us because you put your Holy Spirit in our lives to, be, to keep us on truth. He is the one who will guide us into all truth. So help us, Father, to rely on him. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.